This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt chorley bringing you the best of my times video show monday to thursday 10 till 1 Coming up, as Joe Biden prepares to be sworn in as the 45th President of the United States of America, what does this mean for the Democrats' sister party, Labour, here in the UK? Keir Starmer's team have been reaching out to the Democrats and Team Biden in recent months, so we'll hear from Lisa Nandy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, about what all that means. We'll also hear from Stuart Wood, a former advisor to Gordon Brown, and Will Marshall, who is heavily involved with the Clinton movement, the Third Way, which he forged with Tony Blair and uh, whether or not we'll ever see Prime Minister Starmer visiting President Biden in the White House. First though, it's Monday, so it's time for our columnist panel. It's Liberace, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Let's of course talk about vaccine because there's a slightly more positive uh, um, part of the, uh, the big COVID story. Uh, this question of the sort of the rollout of a, a, an ex- expectation versus reality. Um, so far, at least in the pandemic, the government's been accused of overpromising and then slightly under-delivering. But the opposite seems to be happening. Now. They're being ultra-cautious. And then we get suddenly slightly surprised by the uh, by the jump in um, the number of people who've been vaccinated. Are they, have you been surprised at the, the lack of trumpet-blowing, Libby? Uh Yes, I think it's I think it's sensible, actually, because what, what's happening is both a medical triumph and a logistical nightmare um, in our house. I have to say we're massively excited because we've both uh, signed up as stewards at the local surgery. And I hope I have my first shift tomorrow. So exciting, probably parking cars. But the point is what we're not being told, and I think it would be helpful if they explained to us, is the details of how vaccine supplies get delayed, where they travel from, why, for instance, is the northeast moving faster than London and East Anglia? Is that about supply? Is that about logistics? Because all this is very interesting and it's actually rather triumphant. We're doing well in in European terms. And uh, I I think... uh, a bit of uh, a bit of um, light pessimism from the government is not a bad thing because people are so massively impatient now. Um, you know, they, they do need to damp it down a bit. But on the other hand, they could explain a bit more about the fascinating logistics of this. I mean, I just long to know. I want diagrams. 
<laughs> it is a running joke in our house uh, how obsessed my wife is with the the logistics of fridges and the various temperatures that the yeah, um, that the yeah. different vaccines need to be held at. And yeah, it's it, you know we've all become experts suddenly in the distribution of vaccination. Uh, Rachel, we should probably applaud Boris Johnson. It's not often uh, we say that in this slot. We should probably applaud <laughs> Boris Johnson for not going overboard. Just let the numbers do the talking, and then and let other people congratulate. That they um, put out at the weekend, one hundred and forty jabs a minute going into people's arms. But then the other figure that was one COVID patient being admitted to hospital every 30 seconds and there is this sense of the race of the vaccine against the infections um which is slightly terrifying but i think you're absolutely right it's good not to have this at a moon as a sort of moonshot project and there was that terrible moment uh, a few weeks ago where gavin williamson tried tried to say that Brit- britain was better than all the other countries at the oh, vaccine yeah. which just was horrendous um but i think what's really interesting is when the system, when the machine does all pull together and work in the same direction, it actually can work. So the NHS can deliver this. And it's partly, I think, because you haven't got different bits of the government pulling in different directions. So in every other part of this handling of the virus, you've had a sort of tension between the lives and livelihoods, if you like, between the sort of lockdown hawks and and, uh, doves. Um, And on this, everybody is pulling together for the vaccine. The NHS is just being allowed to get on with it. Uh, And it is managing to deliver the whole, you know, the business, the the companies are being encouraged to produce as much as they can. The treasuries trumped up, stumped up the cash. Everybody is working in the same direction. And actually, the machine does work when all the wheels and levers are going in the same direction. One thing Libby, that um, struck me over the weekend watching Simon Stevens, the, the head of the NHS in England, uh, talking about the rollout of the vaccine, it just sort of slightly, I mean he was sort of, in, despite being the head of the NHS he was largely invisible during the early stage of the pandemic. It does slightly feel like when things go wrong uh, it's Boris Johnson's fault and when things go right it's down to our marvellous NHS and that's not to in any way denigrate, you know doctors and nurses, blimey, who'd want to be in their shoes right on the front line? But the NHS as an organisation hasn't necessarily uh, always showed itself in glory. I mean, anyone who's had an operation cancelled or cancer treatment uh, postponed and that sort of, you know, the NHS hasn't been perfect in all of this. And it does seem like Simon Stevens has suddenly decided now's the time to do the media round uh, because uh, the vaccination programme's going well on his watch. Yes, possibly. But I, I think I think quite a lot of, of the problem that we have is is just a tendency immediately to whinge uh, about whatever's happening. I mean, the fact that in some areas they're now starting on the over 70s, you know, you're now getting a massive thing of, yes, but there are still over 80s who haven't been done yet. Well, you know, again, <laughs> we need these diagrams. It's all about supply. It's all about how it's working. And I don't really sort of care whether it's government or Simon Stevens talking to us, but I would just be so interested in more explanation of exactly how this is being done. Somebody right now will be writing a fantastic book about it. Uh, and I, I hope it's someone from The Times, obviously. Uh, but, you know, we, we're going to need a sort of blow by blow sort of war reporter thing on how this was done, because it is very interesting as, as well as very important. Yeah, and it was fascinating. Just Turner, our colleague, had a great column in the... Uh, times on Saturday, she'd been down. I think it was the Excel Centre and, and seen, and you, you know, you'll see that if you're out uh, volunteering as well. The, the sort of 
the camaraderie. I think that someone who was involved in this, the uh, London 2012 Olympics volunteering scheme is involved in it as well. So there is that, you know, everyone's trying to make it a positive experience. And, yes, and that's, all, that's, all warm and, that's all warm and lovely. But we also want stuff about lorries and fridges yes, and, yes, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, army sure command that... centres. I mean, all, everything is a personal story at the moment and it can get quite irritating. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, uh, although, you know, we're all, you know, I was honking my horn. In fact, I'll honk the horn again. <laughs> Boris Johnson's not playing his trumpet, so I will blow the trumpet instead. Um, you know, every person who is vaccinated is another step towards um, uh, a return to something resembling some form of normality. So that's all, all a good thing. Uh, now it's that, also uh, just a quickly a triumph for experts. You know, the... the... Yeah. A few, it was said that, you know, British people have had enough of experts, but this vaccine is entirely down to experts who managed to discover it and create it and share, you know, research among different countries and different scientific communities. And that is fantastic. I mean, Rachel, you're slightly talking down the, the power of uh, uh, armchair experts on Twitter and shock <laughs> radio hosts and their ability to tackle a pandemic. But if you if you say it's down to the scientists, we'll just have to take your word for it. Um, let's move on uh, from uh, coronavirus now, Rachel. Talk about your podcast, uh, your well, your show on Times Radio, Past Imperfect. Uh, but it's back. It was back over the weekend. Um, explain before we, we hear from the, the first person in the new series. Explain, first of all, what's the idea behind Past Imperfect? Yeah, so um, Alice Thompson and I have been interviewing people um, for over 20 years, years now. And so many of the people we've talked to who've been incredibly successful in their lives have had some kind of trauma or adversity in childhood that they've overcome. And it's really fascinating. It seems to drive them on. So we... we we decided to go back and talk to some of those people and other people about both the tragedies they experienced, but then in a more optimistic way, how that gave them a sort of sense of commitment. Tony Blair, we talked to in the first series, and he talked about um, adversity as a sort of spur to success. In his case, it was when his father had a stroke uh, when he was a young boy. And it kind of, it, he sees that as the moment his ambition sort of started in politics. And it's true of a lot of politicians, actually. I mean, Boris Johnson, his mother suffered from mental health problems, and she is convinced that um, it was the moment when she was taken away to the Maudsley uh, Psychiatric Unit that he decided he wanted to be world king to, to try and get control back over his world. Uh, and there is this sense um, that... You know, obviously, it's something terrible happens. It's not that adversity is necessarily an advantage, but it is possible to turn something around. You know, you don't have to be a victim. Uh, and a lot of the, mo the most successful people we have interviewed over the years have overcome something. And it's rather extraordinary. It's interesting. I've, we've got Eddie Izzard on the show uh, just after half 12 uh, today um, and did the interview over the weekend. And uh, Eddie's uh, uh, lost a parent young. Um, uh, he, we were talking about um, William and Harry as well. And my, my mum died when I was very young as well. And it's, sort of, it's interesting that the, once people start talking about it, actually, the, the number of people mm. who've gone through that and the impact that's, that's had on them. Uh, let's, listen, though, the first episode of the podcast is with, uh, of the new series is with Professor Green. Uh, let's take a listen now to Professor Green talking to Rachel and Alice about his father's death. Uh, just, just to warn you, there are some... Uh, uh, references to suicide so uh, just bear that in mind um, you know if you've got children in the room or whatever you might want to turn it down but yeah this is Professor Green uh, the rapper talking to Rachel and Alice on uh, Past Imperfect. You got back in touch I said I'd never put my neck on the line again I'd never take that step forward so he didn't have that power you know he didn't have the ability to hurt me again and I did because I missed him and the thing is right he was a terrible terrible father but he was a gorgeous gorgeous man he was a 
lovely bloke. He was charming. He was funny. He was sweet. He was kind. He was caring. And we had a conversation, and we were meant to meet up the day after Boxing Day. I was in Walthamstow. I think I remember. I was. I remember clearly. I was with my girlfriend and Tia. We were sat at Burger King. We'd, I'd just gone to a shop to buy a computer game in the sales or something um, with money that I got for Christmas. And uh, I said, "So what's happening tomorrow? Are you coming to me?" And he said, "Oh well, Jackie and the kids are desperate to see you." And Jackie was his wife, and the, the kids he was referring to were his stepchildren. And it was the first time I went, "What?" And he went, what do you mean? What? I went, Jackie and the kids. I went, I'm not coming to play Happy Families. Mm. You and I need to sit down as adults and discuss everything that's come before now to try and see if we can salvage some sort of relationship. And he started to go, well, oh, well I just went, you know what? If I ever see you again, I'm going to knock you out. And I put the phone down on him. And that would be the last time that we ever spoke. And everyone always goes, oh, you must really regret that. <laughs> Why? He does so much to hurt me in my life. And I understand that he had his own problems, but never am I going to guilt myself over being angry at someone that I deserve to be that angry mm. towards. And if I saw him, I wouldn't have knocked him out. I'd have cried my eyes out and hugged him. I missed him. I miss him now. I will forever miss him. But I was entitled to be that angry. There was no way I was ever going to guilt myself over saying that. You know, it was something stupid that was said in a moment of anger. And it it wasn't, you know, I wasn't even actually angry. And this is, you know, I, I've got this theory that anger is adult fear. You know, I can't be seen to be upset. What I was was upset, but that came out as anger. And mm. I think with men, we tend to feel like we have to put a face on things. And that's why we all, you know, we're, we're more reactive. Um, and I got woken up by my nan on a Wednesday morning and uh, she just blurted out, Stephen, your dad's dead, he's hung himself. Oh, my God. I, I, yeah, it, it, it happened the, the night before. I, I never knew he, he had any problems. Um, I, I had no idea. It completely came out of the blue. Um, and I was in a rage. And I remember punching the wall. I was angry. I was sad. I was confused. I was every. I just went through a whole spectrum of emotions. An extraordinary interview there with Professor Green. If you've been infected by any of the, uh, what you've just heard in the clip there, you can always phone the Samaritans on 116123. Uh, Rachel, an extraordinary um, interview. How did you... It's, it's amazing how, frank, once people start talking about it, they, 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 they want to open up to you. Do you find the same mm. with politicians when they're talking I mean, about children? It past? was so moving and powerful. And, you know, he's this incredibly cool guy, platinum-selling artist. He's played Glastonbury... You know, he's had all these hit records and there he was absolutely opening himself up. And he talked as well about his struggles with depression uh, and, you know, he it was a really powerful, moving interview. But what was so, in a way, heartwarming about it, or well, that's probably the wrong word, but he then talked about how his father's death was actually the moment where he decided to turn his life around. So before that, he had been dealing drugs. He'd been, you know, he'd had a pretty tough upbringing. As you probably gather from that clip, his father hadn't been around. His mum hadn't really been around much either. Um, he'd been brought up by his grandmother. And then the jolt of his father's suicide, he thought, right, okay, I've got to make something of my life. I can't just drift anymore. And he sort of he explained that he's actually rapped about the suicide. Um, it was one of his number one hits, extraordinarily. And uh, he's, he talked about, he obviously he wasn't grateful. He'd do everything to anything to have his father back. But it was a, a sort of turning point, pivotal moment for him um, 
that kind of drove him on. And he, he says, you know, resi- you, you need resilience in life and you can only get resilience through pain. pain. Uh, Libby, sometimes just talking about these things could be of help to other people, can't it? Well, it's it's not uncommon, actually. The past imperfect thing is not uncommon at all. I mean, there loads of people from Paul McCartney, you know, loss of his mother, to Samantha Power, wonderful interview this week, one of Obama's team, whose beloved but drunken father died alone, and she heard about this the other side of the world when she was very small, and it made her wanting to make the world better. There was a wonderful interview once with a guy who... Uh, I met a, a guy who ran a bear conservation project in America, um, and sometimes the bears which were tagged uh, would get shot at by by um, hunters, and he was furious about this. And he said, "Yeah, a lot of our bears are carrying lead, and I think a lot of people are, as it were, carrying lead. You know, you walk around with this stuff inside you, and sometimes it can have the effect of making you stronger and more resolute. Uh, you, you see it so often." Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there, and you can, of course, read them both in The Times every week. Libby on a Monday, Rachel on a Tuesday. Just get yourself a Times digital subscription. Just go to the website right now, click on anything that takes your fancy, and as a special bonus, you'll get the first month free. Uh, Just go to thetimes.co.uk. Coming up, Labour and the Democrats. Are they still friends? Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, rapper and songwriter Professor Green talks candidly about being raised on an East London council estate by his grandmother, his drug dealing and how his father's suicide made him re-evaluate his own life. The one thing that I have in common with a lot of my, my friends who come from similarly disadvantaged backgrounds is that we all carry on. And at the end of the day, no matter what happens, if you're still alive, I don't think there's anything really left to do but carry on. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Professor Green, in his own words, now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty. Now it's time for this. 
Now then, a big week for the Democrats this week as Joe Biden is sworn as the 45th president of the United States. You may have heard about that. But a big week too for their sister party, the Labour Party here in the UK, who seem to think that they can learn from Joe Biden's success over right-wing rivals. Uh, in a moment, I'll speak to Labour's Shadow Foreign Secretary, Lisa Nandy, about the work she's put in behind the scenes to get to know the Biden administration. After the Corbyn years, when transatlantic relations I think it's fair to say turned pretty sour. Team Star was hoping that as with Clinton and Blair, Obama and Brown, this time Labour and the Democrats can be friends again. You've got a friend in me. I want to compliment. Uh... Mr. Blair and his party, I think that the way they have proceeded in this has been very statesmanlike and uh, very much in the interest of, uh, of his nation and, and the cause of peace. The United States has played, and I've no doubt will continue to play, a, a helpful role. I'd like to have a 179 seat majority. I'm, to, I'm not going to give any advice. I'm going to sit here and take it. Strong in Europe and strong with the United States. One strength deepens the others. The United States and the United Kingdom have stood together through thick and thin, through war and peace, through hard times and prosperity. And we've always emerged stronger by standing together. I just sent my warmest congratulations uh, to Senator Obama on his election as President of the United States of America. And I've also sent my best wishes to, to him, Michelle, and his family. This is a moment that will live in history as long as history books are written. I've talked to Senator Obama on many occasions and I know that he is a true friend of Britain. The special relationship between the United States and Great Britain uh, is uh, one that is not just important to me, it's important to the American people. Uh, we're meeting today, we're chairing two meetings together. The special relationship is strong and strengthening and it's strengthening because there is a common purpose. I think if you read President Obama's speech to the United Nations yesterday and read the speech that I made, we're dealing with exactly the same challenges and we see things in very similar ways. Uh, so now let's speak to Lisa Nandy, Labour's Shadow Foreign Secretary. Morning, Lisa. Hello, morning. That was a very maturely introduction. <laughs> <laughs> that is the highest compliment that I could be paid. Although I can't take any credit, it was our producer Chloe who did that. But yeah, it was very, it was, but it was a reminder, I suppose, you know, there was a lot to talk about the special relationship, which we talk about between Britain and uh, the United States, but also between Labour and the Democrats. Bill Clinton and Tony Blair had this, you know, the, the, the third way and the extraordinary bond they had. Barack Obama, Gordon Brown, particularly around the financial crisis. Is there still, what, what is the, the relationship like? What is the friendship like between Labour and the Democrats right now? Well, I mean, we've always had a very good friendship and I noted what you said in the introduction about the um, the way in which that those international relationships became strained in recent years. But, you know, David Lammy's friendship with Barack Obama is well, well documented. We've got people on our front bench like Ed Miliband, who obviously worked with people like John Kerry when we were last in government. So lots of familiar faces coming back in to the Biden team, people like Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, who were... Um, well known to us during the Obama era and the Clinton era. But there are what we're looking for, I suppose, with all of our sister parties is a new relationship 
based on the new challenges that we have. And the most pressing of those, of course, is that America, in some ways like Britain, has become extremely divided. This has been a very, very divisive time in which our leaders have sought to stoke that division in order to hang on to power. The next era will be an era in which we seek to bring people back together and move our countries forwards. And that's very much what we've been talking to the, our friends in the Democratic Party about over the last few months. One of the things that struck me speaking to uh, Americans, and we'll hear from Will Marshall was one of them who worked with uh, Bill Clinton and, uh, and through that Tony Blair in the 90s, is that quite how much cut through the, the Corbyn era does seem to have had in America that, that, you know, I mean, you always get the slight impression that Brits are obsessed about American politics and they don't take much notice of us. But the the, the, so the Jeremy Corbyn worldview and the impact that had on the Labour Party did did cut through, didn't it, in the in the Democrat circles in America? I mean, quite quite famously, you know, the Joe Biden made a few comments about about Labour during that period, and so I think it's certainly right to say that it was noticed over in the United States that Labour was in significant amounts of turmoil over the last few years, um, and I think that's probably true actually across the world. Certainly, since Kira and I have been reaching out to sister parties in Europe and further afield. We have had um, a sort of sense, really, that people feel that Labour is back, that we're very focused now on looking forwards to winning an election and to the country and less interested in fighting internal battles. And there is a sense of relief, I think, amongst our international partners about that. I think that relief partly comes from the fact that there are huge challenges in every country around the world for obvious reasons, COVID, climate change, the instability in the global situation, the ramping up of tensions between China and the United States recently. Everybody is grappling with similar problems. And on the left, many of our sister parties have seen their electoral coalitions very smashed apart by that division um, and that attempt to stoke culture wars and divide people further by populist leaders and so they're they're pleased that we're back and that we're we're determined to be part of that global solution and to work with other parties to share learning from here in the UK but also to listen to others to see what we can learn from overseas as well. The parallels are quite striking when you sort of look through them. a big explosive vote in 2016 uh, the rise of a sort of slightly old Old left winger, Bernie Sanders in America, Jeremy Corbyn uh, in the UK, both very popular with uh, young people, not that popular with, with anyone else. Uh, and now a sort of a return to sort of more centrist uh, left wing politics. Do you think is Keir Starmer Labour's Joe Biden? Can he can he perform the same trick? I mean, I think Keir Starmer's Labour's Keir Starmer, to be honest. I mean, I think he's his own person and... That is one of the lessons, actually, from what's just happened in the United States, is that Joe Biden is very much his own person. When we've been talking to members of his campaign team, one of the things that's most interesting is how he very much stood up for the values that he believes in, despite attempts to stoke division around them. You know, he, he mentioned, um, for example, trans the trans community in his victory speech. He was absolutely clear about women's right to choose and appointed Kamala Harris as his running mate. Uh, he spoke out about the Black Lives Matters protests and the policing of those. He stood up for his values, but he never let himself be diverted to only talking about those things. He spoke for the whole country. He spoke up about the economy. He spoke up about the pandemic. And I think in that sense, Keir is, is quite similar, is that he knows who he is and he knows what he's about. And he's determined to push forward with his agenda. It's not an easy thing to do. You know, we've got a prime minister who takes his his sort of, you know, his his politics straight out of the Trump playbook and has tried to stoke up culture wars here as well. But I think largely speaking, you know, we've got a 
we've got a willing and receptive public here in the UK. I think there is a ceiling to how much division people can cope with, especially during a pandemic. I think there's a desperation to see the country move on. And when Boris Johnson won that majority in 2019 on a slogan, just one slogan, get Brexit done, I think they, the Tories took a cue from that to say that, you know, what people most want is hard Brexit and more culture wars. Actually, the cue I took from that here in Wigan was that when Remainers, as well as Leavers, were voting Tory to get Brexit done, what they were telling us is we just want to move forwards and we want to move the country on. And that's what Keir is very focused on. It's interesting you say that that Keir knows uh, who he is and what he's all about. One of the really striking things when we've looked at uh, our focus, we do a focus group every month on Times Radio. And every month we ask people what they think about Boris Johnson, what they think about Keir Starmer. Still, even now, the most overwhelming thing is they don't know anything about him. They don't know who he is or what his values are. Would you like him to be a bit more out there spelling out those values? That actually the time for sort of sitting tight um, is is over and actually being a bit bolder? I think he's he's definitely started to do that. I mean, if you if you look at the last year, it's been the most extraordinary time to become leader of the opposition or, or Shadow Foreign Secretary for that matter. I think I'm the first Shadow Foreign Secretary to go nowhere except my spare room, um, despite having been promised foreign travel when I was offered the job. Um, and it, it has been a very odd time to do this. We've been completely focused on COVID and getting a grip on COVID and trying to help the government to get that right and challenge them where they get it wrong. But I think over the last few weeks, you've started to see Keir do a bit more of that about speaking up about the things that he believes in. He did a speech at the weekend where he talked about the the sort of role that he wants Britain to play in the world and the values that he wants us to advance. And he was drawing on some of the things that he's done previously, trying to take on genocide, trying to to stand up for persecuted minorities in other countries, um, working very closely with European partners and others. And so that is starting to happen, but... um, you know, for me, most of all, actually, is that if you get to know him, he's very warm, he's very funny. And I was talking to Gloria Di Piero on another Times radio show not very <laughs> long ago, and she was saying, how are you going to make sure that the public see that side of him? And I think that that just takes time, actually. I think, you know, once people do start to see his personality as well and get to know him, that, you know, I feel very positive about that. And I think the Biden team felt very similarly about Biden as well, is that once people started to know who he was and what he was about, they did very much trust that the country was safe in his hands. But, you know, look back to to, to December 2019, Matt, and just remember where we were then. <laughs> it's, we've it come a long like way a since then ago. and we've yeah, still exactly got that. a long way to go. Just finally, very quickly, you would have been going to the inauguration if if, if such things were allowed? Well, we we discussed it, but I mean, as we sort of suspected, to be honest, COVID rates in the UK put paid to that. And obviously events in the United States as well, which have been, you know, that it's meant that the inauguration has been very up in the air and the arrangements around that have been very tight. We we didn't think it was sensible, but we're very much looking forward to welcoming Biden (laughs) next year, this year, sorry, for COP26 and the G7. And the one thing I would say about him is that the guy is a pragmatist. He will work with Britain. He will work with whoever is in government, despite his personal misgivings about Boris Johnson and our job is to help strengthen and support that relationship, make sure it's based on values and make sure that this country succeeds. Lisa Nandy, thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to Keir Starmer coming on the show and being warm and funny as well. uh, (laughs) Lisa Nandy, uh, Labour's Shadow Foreign Secretary, lovely to speak to you and uh, talk us through the the relationship between the Labour Party and Democrats. We'll talk more about that next here on Times Radio. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. 
So we're talking about the relationship between the Democrats in America and Labour here in the UK. I've been speaking to two people who fostered that relationship over the years. Stuart Wood was a foreign affairs advisor to Gordon Brown when he bonded with Barack Obama over the response to the financial crisis. He recalls the perils. Uh, it's well worth look at, listening out for the story about the perils of swapping presents between two leaders. But first, Will Marshall, president and founder of the Progressive Policy Institute think tank in Washington, D.C. He played a key role in the third way, the ideology which bound together Bill Clinton and Tony Blair in the 1990s. I asked Will how that alliance came about and what lessons could be learned this time, Matt. Well, I, I'm struck by a, a kind of parallelism between the Democrats here and the Labour Party that goes back for decades. Both parties were in the political wilderness in the 80s. Uh, and then Clinton broke out in 92 with his new Democrat election and brought a kind of a fresh uh, sense of possibilities to the Democrats. And that certainly caught the attention of the young modernizers uh, in Britain at the time. And, you know, and, and uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown came over uh, and it was a great... Uh, you know, comparing of notes, a great cross-fertilization that took place. Uh, and no question, I think, uh, that that uh, New Labour drew inspiration from Clinton's success and, uh, and went on to uh, develop their own formulas that were quite successful in bringing Labour back into power and government. So, uh, and then you see this, you know, this parallelism, key, parallelism keeps happening, you know, uh, Brexit, was passed in 2016, just before Donald Trump's election, both sort of signaling a turn toward, you know, nationalism and populism uh, in our respective countries. And I'm hoping that Biden's victory is a harbinger of a change in Britain. Uh, we also saw the, the sort of the rise of the left uh, in the respective parties as well. You had Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, Bernie Sanders in the United States. Uh, is 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 Keir Starmer Britain's version of Joe Biden? Is that enough? What what, what do you make of Keir Starmer? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd rather defer to Stuart on on some <laughs> of that, but let me just say that you know clearly Starmer has picked up uh, the pieces after the the Corbyn debacle and is trying to uh, help the party find its way back to majoritarian politics and the ability to govern, win elections and govern. So. That's 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 promising. Uh, it's early yet. We're everybody here is just learning more about Mr. Stormer. He, he's not as well known here as Tony Blair was. He hasn't been over here as much, as far as I can tell. Uh, but there's hope here that uh, that this is a chance to redirect the party toward again a broader, the kind of broader big tent or big church, as you all would say, coalition <laughs> that uh, Joe Biden managed to build in this uh, 2020 campaign. OK, let's bring Stuart in. Stuart, you were the uh, uh, foreign policy advisor for Gordon Brown when he was prime minister, went to uh, Washington when he was uh, meeting Barack Obama. So, but then also when Ed Miliband went to Washington to meet Barack Obama, you were instrumental in that. From my perspective, it looks like the, the relationship between Gordon Brown and Barack Obama was never on the same level as sort of Clinton Blair. But what was that relationship like? It's true that it's true that it wasn't the same kind of loving that, that Tony and uh... Bill Clinton had. And partly that's because Gordon, remember, this is the period that Will just just spoke about in the 90s when Labour was in opposition and Bill Clinton was in his ascendancy. That's when the relationship was really struck. And Gordon and Tony were kind of joined at the hip at that point. They they both went out. They both studied um, welfare reform in particular. 
they were keen to create a sense of there being a coattails from the Clinton success that translated across here, a different kind of centre-left that was safe for their country, which took market seriously. So Gordon was part of that, and therefore all his connections were really with the Clinton world, including Will. So the, I, I remember when, 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 when Obama, you know, at first surprisingly beat Hillary in, in the point he was coming up on the rails and eventually beat Hillary um, before he became president in the Democrat primary. I mean, there's no doubt Gordon was quite keen for Hillary to win at that point because all of his connections and friends were, were in the Clinton world. And the Obama world, although they ended up, you know, bringing people in from the Clinton world at that time, there was quite a strong cultural distinction between the two. So I think Gordon found that he didn't have a subculture in common with, with the Obama world, and that was part of the problem. Um, but, yeah, and they were very different kind of people as well. But I think they actually did bond. And if you look at Obama's book, you know, he has a lot of, essentially he says, you know, Gordon was a less clubbable person maybe than Tony. But when the economic crash happened, I realised that, you know, that's where his amazing contribution was. And that that's true. It was the crash that really brought them closer together in the sense that they uh, they needed each other and they they had a similar story to tell really about about the role of leadership in the crisis i'm obviously tempted to ask you in particular about the exchange of gifts gifts uh, will will you don't have this problem in the us i don't think quite as much but gifts between british prime ministers and american presidents are like the great it's like a great nightmare for any prime minister and team around a prime minister because you're guaranteed a, a terrible story at your expense so we managed to control a couple in my time we, we, we found this extraordinary, well, we, we actually made up an amazing gift, which is we made this uh, wooden pencil holder out of wood that was used from, I think, the last, I can't remember which ship it was. It was a ship that basically was connected to the slave trade. It marked the end of the slave trade in some way. So it was a sort of... The, sh- the ship was even, so it was, the, it was the sister ship of the Resolute. So the, the desk in the Oval Office is made uh, from wood from the Resolute, uh, HMS Resolute. And it was its sister ship that the wood was taken from that made this pen holder. So that, I mean, that is quite the gift. We got a, t- a set of 25 DVDs of the top 25 <laughs> movies in, in the US that year or something. So <laughs> the lack of balance, you know, it's like when you get your, you know, you get your beloved a fantastic <laughs> gift and they get you a, you know, a couple of pens instead. It was that sort of mismatch became the story. So... We were so proud of that gift. We put so much thought into it. We really did. And in return, you got twenty-five DVDs that you couldn't play in the UK because they were the wrong. They were the wrong type of DVD. Do you know what? I've still got. I've still got about ten of them because I've got a Region One DVD player. So I took them home. So I've got them sitting here on my shelves. To some extent, Will, this this demonstrates, doesn't it, the imbalance, if you like, in the in the so-called special relationship that while Brits Brits spend, you know. Uh, certain types of political enthusiasts in Britain, uh, uh, particularly on the left, but across the spectrum too, gripped by CNN's maps and early results from Miami County or whatever it is, um, and obsessing about US politics in a way that most Americans don't with British politics uh, and not with, you know, who is the leader of the Labour Party in Britain. Well, it's even worse. We 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 uh, we made you a gift of Donald Trump, so, uh, <laughs> so the balance is really askew. How significant are those connections, though, uh, Will, between uh, the Democrats and the Labour Party? You know, Blair and Clinton had a similar view of the political challenges their parties faced: the need for revitalization or modernization, which was the buzz phrase in the nineties. Uh, and uh, and I think that's right. And it was part of a generational shift too. They were both about the same age, and 
outlook. And they, they both understood that the, that the traditional coalitions that had defined their parties needed to be updated. And Tony and uh, Gordon made a, a play for Middle England, uh, raiding some of the turf that had been dominated uh, by the Tories. And, and, and Clinton did something similar uh, in, in the United States in trying to hold on to, really, the white working class voters who had been uh, leeching away to Republicans for the better part of a generation. So, uh, but, but, all, but all organized around defining new responses to globalization uh, and, uh, and, and the kind of uh, rise of this information and knowledge economy. Uh, so they, you know, they they had more of a shared mission, and and uh, I think than than we've been able to muster recently. And of course, uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's ascendancy was something that just kind of, uh, you know, really ended, you know, the kind of it didn't end the relationship, but there wasn't a whole lot of communication between the formal party and. Uh, new Labor under Corbyn. There might have been uh, communication among the left-wing elements on either side, but uh, certainly there wasn't much, you know, certainly most Democrats didn't see Corbyn as a model to be emulated, and so that relationship was you know, pretty much non-existent. But now, uh, you know, as I said, we have a moment here where uh, Biden has defeated Donald Trump and dealt a setback to these this nationalist populist wave that's you know, not unique to the United States and Britain, but it's really seen all over the transatlantic world. Um, and, you know, uh, there may be some clues there, uh, news folks can use in Britain as, as Labor now thinks about how to rebuild its stake in, in the Red Wall North and Midlands, uh, but also, you know, to, to win in the suburbs, which I think, you know, if you're going to put together a governing coalition, you have to do. So uh, certainly there, there, there's a lot to compare notes about. And uh, my guess is that uh, the new leader and his folks will be watching Biden's progress carefully and seeing what they might glean from it that's useful for them. Yeah, uh, just finally then, and uh, technically, if you look at the, the sort of election timetable, it is possible uh, that they never even overlap in office, because if we go all the way to December 2024 for the next UK election, uh, that would happen after the next uh, US election. But do you think that we will see a situation of uh, Prime Minister Keir Starmer and President Joe Biden working together on the world stage in the following the footsteps of Brown Obama and Clinton Blair? I'll start with you first, Will. Well, look, I, Joe Biden is uh, someone who has been a, a spokesperson for foreign policy and American global engagement for decades. And there's no question that he is really keen on revitalizing the bonds with our European friends and allies. Uh, it's, I think, uh, Donald Trump's America first uh, ideology sticks in Joe Biden's crawl, maybe as badly as his anti-immigration policies and, and other uh, egregious uh, stands he's taken. And so Biden's very serious about that. He's very personal about uh, re-cementing some of these ties. So I think he, he'll be open to investing uh, a lot of uh, capital in that generally. Now, whether that leads to a, a new dialogue between the Democrats and Labour, between his party and Labour, uh, remains to be seen. And uh, But it is striking, as Stuart said, how parallel the challenges look. Uh, you know, the Democrats here, uh, the coalition has been very much uh, an urban and coastal uh, centric uh, coalition. 
uh, and very much tilted up the income scale toward um, college graduates, the young uh, professionals. And, you know, there's just a vast swath of America where the Democrats have not penetrated. Uh, and so I think the geographical inequality, uh, economic, social, cultural, is going to be a huge concern for Joe Biden. He's going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how he can reconnect with voters out in those heartland states that Stuart mentioned in the Midwest, which are the difference, which are the reason that he, his winning them back made him president. Uh, and so uh, doing that in a way that uh, keeps uh, faith with the core Democratic constituencies is his big challenge. And it, it looks similar. It, that looks kind of structurally similar to what uh, uh, what Mrs. Charmer is, is uh, thinking about and facing, according to the folks that have been advising him that we've talked to. So all I can say is I hope it does lead to a compare a helpful and constructive dialogue where you can compare notes. But, you know, these are very but these are culturally distinct challenges because, as Stuart points out, I think, uh, you know, the left and as you pointed out, uh, the left never really took control of the Democratic Party. When 2020 started, everybody thought that was going to happen. It was an inexorable ascendancy of the left. And uh, and yet Joe Biden never took that view and made the strong bet that, in fact, the center of gravity in the party was much closer to the pragmatic center than toward Bernie Sanders and AOC and the Democratic Socialist Left. He was right about that. Uh, but uh, now you've got to cobble together a new coalition and make it cohere. But I think he has some constructive ideas for that, and, uh, and those could be those could be valuable, uh, you know, to, to, to folks in Britain trying to do something similar. I mean. Um... Stuart, a lot of what Will talks about there is it reads across totally, doesn't it, to the demographic and, and social uh, challenges the Labour Party faces in the UK. Will we see Prime Minister Keir Starmer heading to Joe Biden's White House, do you think? I mean, probably an outside bet at this stage because of the, because of the as you say, you have to, we'd have to make a monumental indent into, 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 the, into voting behaviour to turn it around in one go. But it's not out of the question. It probably needs a sort of split on the right, to be honest, that hopefully the Republicans are about to engage in over the US. Well, I say hopefully, I actually hope that the, the moderate part of the Republican movement wins quite easily, but I suspect that won't happen. But more generally, look, I think Keir Starmer's going to have to, we're going to have to, as Labour, have a you know, huge turnaround in order to get back in one go and have that White House visit, unless Biden has a second term. And then, you know, I'm very confident there'll be a Starmer meeting down the line. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.